Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today a return visit from Dr. Deb Schwangel, who is one of our pediatric anesthesiologists and a really fantastic teacher, always perennially one of our best teachers here at Hopkins. And we are going to talk this time about pediatric OSA. Deb, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we hop in, I want to point out that this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. It's a great website, as listeners know from prior episodes. Uh, they feature really great content about anesthesiology. You can check out all their news and content and archives at anesthesiologynews.com. Uh, I get no financial support from them whatsoever, by the way, so this is not a plug uh, to try to sell anything, and it's a free publication, but it's really well done. So check it out, and you'll see this episode featured there as well. All right, so Deb, let's jump in and talk about pediatric uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So give me the basics. What? Uh, how common is this? We think about it certainly in adults. Is it common in kids too? It is fairly common in kids, probably a little less so than in adults, but with the number of obese children rising in the, the world and the country, uh, it is a prominent feature of, uh, of obese patients. Uh, it tends to be about 1% to 6% of children. Uh, the, the number depends on the, which publication you read. Uh, adults, perhaps more like 25%, and bariatric patients, probably more like 70%. Okay, and I would assume that obese children are more likely than all-comer children to have OSA. Exactly, and also uh, they're less likely to be cured by a tonsillectomy compared to children who are not obese. Interesting. Okay. Do we know why? Just because of the all of the comorbidities of obesity. Right. So it's not just the tonsils. There's everything else that's going on. Correct. Okay, interesting. So... What exactly is this, especially in these kids where the tonsillectomy itself doesn't cure it? It's not just obstruction. So are there other things going on? Yeah, it used to be that we thought OSA was purely a mechanical thing. Uh, And now we know that it is much more than that. It is really a multi-system disorder. And so because of that, some people call this OSAS, obstructive uh, sleep apnea syndrome, because it is really an immune disorder. It has cardiovascular, central nervous system, as well as metabolic effects. Okay. And so the are there also, um, are these kids more likely to have other uh, congenital abnormalities or no? It's, it's not related. It, uh, they may. And so uh, when a little later, I think we'll get into the, the way that uh, some of the, the patients present and, uh, and the age differences do matter in, in terms of what comor- comorbidities there may be. Okay, great. Now, are there different subtypes of OSA or OSAS? Yeah, so we kind of talk about four phenotypes. And uh, traditionally, the, the kids that were more prominent, uh, prominently uh, presented were those with large lymphoidal tissues. So big tonsils and adenoids, clearly they lead to obstruction, mostly because these kids have a, a lot of lymphoid tissue growth compared to the size of their airways. Mm-hmm. And so just a, really an imbalance there. And, uh, and so that's the traditional two to eight-year-old kind of uh, patient with OSA. But then the obese patients uh, are really becoming, uh, coming to the forefront as being the main uh, phenotype related to OSA, uh, but kids with craniofacial disorders, 
uh, are, are more prominent in the younger age groups, and then kids with neuromuscular disorders are at risk throughout their lives, potentially. Okay. Now, let me ask you about the obesity subtype, which, as you said, these days with more and more obesity in children is becoming more common. Is there, can that, do you know if that, if they lose enough weight, do they lose the OSA or is that not necessarily a cure? I think that is a topic that needs more investigation. Okay. And uh, I think, yes, uh, there is a potential that they will. Uh, as opposed to just staying on CPAP or something like that, which children don't do very well with. Right. Um, but uh, like some adults, uh, there are going to be some patients who have a genetic predisposition to having OSA. Right, because, of course, there are some thin adults who have OSA. Right, and the, and the thinking about the immune modulation of all of this is that you get uh, kind of a, a, a positive feedback cycle. So which comes first? It's the chicken or the egg kind of thinking. Is it the the metabolic stuff that comes first and leads to OSA? Does OSA come first and lead to obesity? We don't really know in all patients. Interesting. Okay. Let's talk about the pathophysiology. So what what is actually going on here? Well, uh, so clearly there's an, there's obstruction at some level in the in the pharynx and um, because of uh, lymphoidal tissue that may be worse in some kids. Uh, but compared to adults, uh, we know a few things about uh, sleep study differences and physiologic differences. Kids are a little more stiffer airways, and uh, so they're a little less likely to completely collapse like adult airways do. And so when you're doing investigation to find out uh, about uh, whether a patient has obstructive sleep apnea, namely a sleep study, the um, the pediatric patients are more likely to have hypopneas, which are partial airway collapse leading to gas exchange abnormality. And so that's a more prominent feature of children's OSA than adults. Uh, it, another difference is that the events are really stage specific. So kids tend to have their obstructive events more during REM sleep. And uh, adults can have that uh, a little less specifically during a, a particular sleep cycle. Um, the, uh, we talked a little bit already about kids just in general having smaller airway tish, uh, airways and so that any kind of addition of any kind of tissue, such as lymphoidal tissue, obese tissue, or any uh, deposition disorders like mucopolysaccharidosis or something like that will lead to more airway obstruction. Um, the other thing is about OSA that you can get some dysfunction, a neurologic dysfunction with uh, central nervous system regulation of tissues as well as uh, response to CO2. And, um, and so there may be some dysfunctional neuromuscular responses to airway pressures as well as a decreased arousal threshold to hypercarbia. And is that because they get accustomed to it? They are common, they are sort of more commonly um, experiencing hypercarbia, and so they uh, kind of, their body adjusts, they have some renal compensation like adults do, or? I, th I think it's more of a real uh, sort of a remodeling or dysfunction in the CNS. Okay. Uh, not just a hydrogen ion kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it may be some of both. I, I, uh, but the, uh, we do know that they're, their central nervous system neurons are different. Okay. And are there genetic uh, predispositions to OSA? 
certainly uh, some families do seem to have a predisposition, and so you'll see uh, subsequent children in a family coming for tonsillectomy uh, and because they've they seem to have the same gene <laughs> apparently right. that uh, their 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 parents do or their siblings do. And uh, also, we know that African American children may be more at risk as well. Are there other? So we know obesity, obviously, a big risk factor. Um, African American uh, race, it sounds like, is a risk factor, and uh, uh, there may be some other things. I think we'll we'll get into diagnosis in a minute. Um, you mentioned immune; uh, the immune system probably plays a role. Um, is there a way in which this is an inflammatory disorder? Yeah, we know that uh, there are elevations in pro-inflammatory cytokines, and um, and asthma is is a similar kind of disorder in that there is an inflammatory component, and this is another positive feedback uh, loop where asthma makes OSA worse. OSA potentially makes asthma worse as well. All right, great. So let's talk about the diagnosis itself. How how is this diagnosed in children? Well, the gold standard is a, a polysomnogram, and so otherwise known as a sleep study. That is uh, not necessarily the best gold standard, however, because there are a lot of problems uh, in conducting it. It is an expensive test. You have to sleep in somebody else's bed uh, with all, all kinds of things attached to you. So some patients just do not sleep very well. And so when we're talking about children, if you can't even get them into REM sleep, you haven't done a very good test. And uh, so that's a that's a problem. Uh, also, in rural areas of the country, there may not be a sleep lab and certainly not a pediatric sleep lab. Um, and so we end up with scoring that may be a little bit less reliable if they haven't scored for hypopneas. Right. Okay. And so it's interesting because specifically, like you said, this tends to happen in REM sleep with kids. So you really have to get them into REM sleep, whereas adults, maybe it's less dependent on what stage of sleep they're in. Yeah. Although anybody who doesn't sleep in the sleep lab hasn't gotten a good study. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I can't imagine trying to sleep with all those wires and who knows what else attached to you, right? Yeah. I don't think it would be a very pleasant night. So in theory, if you see the hypopneas, then you've got your diagnosis. But if you don't, it doesn't mean that uh, they don't have OSA. It may be that they didn't sleep well enough. Correct. Now, they can they can also have discrete, uh, complete obstructions, too. It, I, I didn't want to leave you thinking that they only have hypopneas. Right. But uh, they're more, adults are less likely to have hypopneas. Great. All right. So polysonography is the gold standard, but has some serious issues. So we obviously don't send any kid who we're worried about for polysonography before taking them to the OR. Are there other things we do? Do we use, for example, stop bang with with kids? Um, yeah, and I and I think uh, the, I mean the the we should discuss all of that. Uh, stop bang may apply to some of the older kids a little bit, but it's uh, clearly not something that's suitable for the youngest kids. Um, but it's it's an important question to raise. And um, so one of the ways I like to uh, teach about how can we screen children is to actually go through stop bang and, and talk about which components of stop bang are, are useful in children. And so the S, which stands for snoring, is a useful tool uh, to use. And so I think uh, it's an appropriate sque- screening question for all patients who come to the operating room uh, regardless of age. Um, and if the pa- patient's parents say the child snores, then you can dig into that a little bit 
in, in depth. So if the child only mildly snores and doesn't snore every night of the, the week, we don't worry about it so much. But if they say, oh, yeah, this kid snores like a truck driver, uh, we can hear him through the closed door every night of the week, right. then I want to say, okay, well, tell me more. Um, does do, does the child have breath-holding episodes? Do you worry about whether your child is moving air? Does he or she sleep in a uh, f- funny position where they seem to be extending the airway to try to maximize airflow? Are they diaphoretic during sleep? Um, and do they have any uh, of the other things that we tend to think about in patients who don't sleep well? Um, and those are that is a little different in kids than adults. So when we talk about the T, which stands for tiredness in, in adults, uh, little kids may not exhibit daytime fatigue. Sure. Every, every, Other than at nap time. Yeah. Right. But every parent who has a kid who doesn't sleep understands that kids who don't sleep get kind of mean. Yeah. And they have behavior problems. Right. And so if the child is, uh, is sometimes hyperactive, not doing well in school, uh, is really a, a difficult child, maybe you should investigate whether sleep is a problem for them. Right. Uh, enuresis is another another thing that can be seen. Okay. And then the O, oh, the obstruct, uh, the observed apneas, certainly they can be uh, a reliable uh, thing to look for in children as well as adults. The problem is if you're if you're expecting these events during REM sleep, REM sleep happens at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Not all parents are awake to, to watch that. Right. But if a parent tells me, I'm really worried about my child, I sleep with my child because I'm so worried about how he or she sleeps, that tells me a lot. Yeah. Um, and so that's probably because they are seeing these kinds of things. Right. Uh, the P stands for uh, pressure, hypertension. Uh, in general, you don't do a, a blood pressure monitoring during a sleep study because it, it would wake up the patient. Uh, but there are some uh, studies out there that suggest that there is probably a, a pressure-related phenomenon that occurs at night in children as well as adults. It just because their their cardiovascular system is in general healthier they may not show hypertension during the day. But there are some studies out there that have shown that there are some kids, even with uh, probably only moderate uh, sleep study, sleep apnea, that um, may have some septal shift in their heart, which may indicate that they do have mm. nocturnal hypertension. Interesting. And uh, so uh, that may be occurring in some of these kids, and we just don't know about it. Okay. And then the the B the BMI uh, is relevant because uh, you have obese children as well as obese adults, and uh, we know that it is related. Um, the age is uh, is an area though where we have to t- talk more. Right. Um, so clearly, uh, the older adults have more of a risk of having OSA. Uh, the uh, children I, I like to categorize into three different groups. One or uh, one group is the less than two year olds, and uh, those I think are, are if they have OSA, they're more likely to have craniofacial problems, uh, neuromuscular problems. Uh, perhaps they were a premature infant, which led to some craniofacial modeling. Uh, we know that intermaxillary distance may make them a little bit more at risk of having OSA. Um, and so those kinds of things um, are probably particularly pertinent to the less than two-year-olds. Okay. 
the two to eight year olds are the the age again where you have the lymphoidal hypertrophy that just pretty much outstrips the size of the airways, and so those are the kids who may be best cured by a tonsillectomy. And then the greater than eight-year-olds are um, more likely to have adult-style OSA. They're more likely to be obese, probably some uh, genetic predispositions as well. Um, but that can go along with the, the other age groups too. Um, and so you tend to look for more of things like metabolic syndrome in this age group. And, um, and so um, these kids uh, uh, can be screened perhaps a little bit more like um, adults, and I believe somebody is working on an older kid stop bang tool. Okay. Um, and then neck, neck circumference. Uh, again, if you have an obese child, probably have a bigger neck. I mean, uh, uh, like adults, if you have if you have a neck versus no neck, it probably matters to their OSA. Probably also matters to their airway management. Presumably, the same cutoff measurement is not going to be the same for kids, right? Because yeah. they're going to be smaller. But I mean, if you have a seventeen-year-old who has a neck circumference over forty, then I'd be concerned. Yes, that's significant. Okay. Um, and then uh, the G, the gender. Uh, we do think in the uh, the older age group kids that uh, male gender is uh, relevant. Okay. So uh, good. So a lot of good things in that stop being still to use. Um, and so do you guys routinely use that uh, to evaluate kids coming in for surgery? Well, not really so much because we're dealing with a lot of three- and four-year-olds. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I like to start with the, the snoring as the initial screening question and then dig into more about the parent's concern. We do know that questionnaires that have been produced uh, are not perfect, uh, it's just like stop bang isn't perfect, but it is it is a w an awareness tool. Right. And I think one of the real take home messages here is that you have to have an awareness. And so uh, it, you're a little more aware of if the child is coming for a tonsillectomy. But what if the child is not coming for a tonsillectomy? You still need to screen for OSA because you may be using potent medications that could put them at risk in the post-operative period. Uh, so you, you need to have some kind of mechanism for determining if your patient is at risk. And so snoring is a reasonable way to start. Um, and uh, the other thing about questionnaires is that uh, they may have some sensitivity and specificity for determining whether somebody has OSA, but they're not at all studied or proven to show anything about perioperative risk. So you have to be smart about that. You know, right. you really have to be uh, a suspicious uh, anesthesiologist when you're talking about this stuff with your patients and deciding if you have the sense that your patient is at risk or not. Absolutely. And then what about um, home oximetry? Is that helpful? So the, uh, the, the, the group in uh, Montreal has done a lot of work with this. And so serial nocturnal oximetry probably is helpful. Uh, the challenge, like uh, many, is is that you have to have a system that has that available, is set up for people to to use, and then you have to download the data and analyze it. Uh, so it probably is relevant. And uh, so they've produced um, some research to suggest that if people are are chronically um, hitting saturation nadirs less than eighty to eighty five, that they're at risk, and that's probably severe disease. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about 
<clears throat> how severe, <clears throat> excuse me, pediatric uh, OSA is, with a sleep study, the, the numbers are lower than adult studies. So we consider a number of one to five to be mild. And what is that referring to, the one to five? That's the, the AHI or the RDI, so the apnea hypopnea index or the respiratory disturbance index. And what is that? Um, so that, is that has to do with the number of kind of hypopnic or desaturation episodes? Correct. So they're the, the number of events scored in an hour. Okay. Um, and that uh, uh, is correlated also with a saturation of greater than 92. Okay. So uh, mild is one to five events per hour and... Or, I guess, and a saturation greater than 92%. Correct. And then moderate uh, AHI, RDI in children is 5 to 9, and there's not really a saturation that's defined for that category. And then severe is an AHI, RDI of 10 or greater, and uh, saturations in in that 80 to 85 range below that, we we would be considering them to be severe. Okay, so you can you can meet the criteria by low saturations or by meeting your number of events per hour. Correct, and and uh, also there's uh, there's usually some capture of end tidal CO2, mm-hmm. and so if that's high, that may be another factor that you want to pay attention to in determining what the disposition of your patient is going to be after surgery. Great. All right, so let's talk. Now, we've talked about how to diagnose these kids and the different ways that are used to kind of figure out who's at risk. So let's talk about the management perioperatively. What are you keeping in mind? How are you managing these kids to keep them as safe as possible? Right. Well, again, the first challenge is to know who has it um, and to be very, very suspicious in patients who have uh, risk factors like obesity, uh, Down syndrome, uh, former preemies, craniofacial disorders, hypotonic kids, um, and abnormal airways. Uh, one of the challenges with hypotonic kids that I didn't mention when we were talking about snoring is the hypotonic kids might not generate noise. So snoring might not be a good enough screening question for them. Interesting. Uh, we know that kids with Downs are probably uh, 70 to 80 percent of them have obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. So we just assume they have it pretty much, and uh, they're considered patients at risk who should be kept overnight. Okay. Um, all right. And so then you want to keep in mind, as you said, who might have it. You probably won't have polysonography on most of these most of these kids, but you want to have an idea in your head. Who do I think is at risk? And then if you think a kid's at risk, how are you going to actually try to avoid causing them harm? Right. Uh, well, so we know that uh, opioids are um, a risk for the, for these patients. And uh, that has been uh, shown in a number of studies. Again, the Montreal group has done a lot of research there. And uh, so we think that uh, their sensitivity is such that they should only be given half of the normal dose of, of morphine. Most of those studies were done with morphine. So if you would consider giving 0.1 milligrams per kilo, to your patient and you know they have severe obstructive sleep apnea, they should only get 0.05 milligrams per kilo. Okay. And that is a board question now. So you have to know, not necessarily that dose, but to give a reduced dose of opioid to these patients. Uh, So it's also, I think, uh, important to think about, uh, can you use modalities that are going to uh, be likely to maintain an open airway, so regional 
avoiding uh, opioids again, dexmedetomidine tends to maintain airway patency. And, um, and so uh, you want to also consider using more acetaminophen um, or um, ibuprofen, although there's a lot of controversy uh, with surgeons about whether using NSAIDs really increases the risk of uh, perioperative bleeding mm-hmm. in tonsillectomy patients. So tonsillectomy patients have two main risks. One of them is airway obstruction mm-hmm. after surgery, and the other is post-tonsillar hemorrhage. Yep. So both can be fatal, uh, and so you have to be cautious about both of them. So I think now after, uh, in, in this day and age, uh, less and less uh, opioid is given to these patients when they go home, and more NSAIDs. Uh, in, in countries other than the United States, NSAIDs have been used pretty uh, extensively with a good safety record. I think the the main teaching now, though, is that, uh, of course, aspirin is absolutely forbidden in these patients. It's definitely a risk because it kills your platelets for nine days. It makes them just uh, incapable of creating an adequate clot. Right. And then um, uh, no uh, ketorolac in, in the uh, in immediate perioperative period. But we do tend to send kids home with um, with ibuprofen orally after hemostasis is achieved. Okay. Are there other medications that you use or don't use to try to optimize these kids? Yeah, so uh, dexamethasone has been studied a little bit, although there hasn't really been a, comp- uh, a really clarifying dose-finding study uh, to determine which is the best dose of that to use. There was a, a great study uh, some years ago about uh, the best dose for post-op nausea and vomiting, and that clearly showed the small dose was just as effective as the large dose. But the same kind of study has not been done related to pain mm-hmm. and tonsillectomy. Uh, but the Montreal group, again, had uh, created an algorithm or, or a, actually a recipe to use uh, for these patients where they used half of the dose of morphine and an increased dose of, of uh, dexamethasone. And we know that dexamethasone has some pain-related effects. Um, it just hasn't been studied clinically as well as we might like for this patient population. So they use 0.3 milligrams per kilo in their uh, in their plan for their patients, and uh, so that's what we have adopted as well. And so we think that dose of dexamethasone is um, probably going to help create better uh, pain profile after surgery. Okay. Great. And then uh, I assume you're not really using codeine anymore? We are definitely not using codeine uh, anymore. It's a black box warning from the FDA. And the reason for that is that it's really a prodrug. And uh, there's a lot of um, genetic variation in metabolism, which is uh, dependent on the CYP2D6 enzyme. Um, And we know there can be variability there, but what has been uh, proposed in a few deaths is that there were some patients who were hyper metabolizers of codeine, and so the patient got a normal dose of codeine, but then they get too much liberation of m- morphine <clears throat> in their bloodstream, and therefore they end up with essentially an overdose. Right. Okay. So important to keep in mind. 
And then we talked before, I think you mentioned that these patients can actually ha- be difficult airways. Um, so what do you, how does that play out and how do, you, how do you try to avoid any complications from induction and intubation? So a lot depends on whether this is a, a craniofacial disorder, an obesity disorder, or this is really just big tonsils. <clears throat> the patients with big tonsils can be managed usually pretty well with a standard inhaled induction. Uh, Just knowing that they are likely to obstruct, however, on induction, we use CPAP and uh, and plan to do that early in in the induction phase. And then once the patient is deep enough, then placement of an oral airway is very effective. And so typically for the, the, the standard tonsillar hypertrophy patient, that works very well. If a patient, though, has extreme uh, severity of their their disorder, and we have a sleep study that shows they have uh, maybe a, an RDI of 60 or something like that, right. I'll put an IV in first. Okay. Because you just want to bypass that stage of airway obstruction that's going to happen with inhaled agents um, by just using a faster induction agent like propofol. Now, do you ever do awake intubations, in, especially in, like, the craniofacial abnormality kids? Uh, typically, children don't tolerate that. Yeah, I it's, would imagine. It's a much more difficult uh, a thing to, to, to consider in a, a small child. Potentially in a teenager, you can. Uh, but now that we have uh, good in, intravenous agents that we can use to maintain breathing, like dexmedetomidine or propofol as an infusion, we usually will uh, just slowly titrate up our infusion mm-hmm. uh, to maintain respirations and um, and then have all of our airway uh, support devices in the room and maybe our surgeons to help <clears throat> if uh, we think that we might have a significant airway problem. Okay, great. And then what about postoperatively? So uh, do these kids all need to stay in the hospital or can they go home, some of each? So uh, some, some of each. So in general, the severe kids need to stay. So the challenge is, well, what if you haven't gotten a sleep study and you really don't know how severe their disease is? Yeah. Um, then, um, then we tend to say, well, if, if I think that it's severe and I think that the patient is going to need opioids, I'm going to keep them. Um, the other things to look at are the risks of persistent disease after tonsillectomy. So not everybody gets cured with a tonsillectomy, although you might make a patient improved. Let's say you're taking care of an obese patient and they're in the severe range. Taking out their tonsils might move them to the mild or moderate range of disease. Uh, however, you don't get instantly cured the day of surgery. Um, you, you, it takes several weeks for the tissues to 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 you know adapt to not having the big tonsils there right. for some edema to go away and all of that. Um, and so, uh, if if the patient has any risk uh, after all. Uh, all of the tonsillectomy is done, then we keep them. So the obese patients, the Down syndrome patients, the neuromuscular patients, craniofacial, uh, severe asthma, uh, other significant comorbidities uh, would stay. indicate that they would stay. Okay. And usually that's just a 23-hour stay. We just want to make sure they do okay through the night, their pain is adequately managed, and they can drink and stay hydrated because one of the risks for post hemorrhage is dehydration. Right. 
the clot tends to, the scab tends to fall off prematurely, and then you right. end up with um, bleeding a week later. Right. Um, other kids who need to be admitted are those less than three years of age, uh, probably for two reasons. One is their airways are smaller, and the other is that when the younger you are with OSA, uh, the more likely you may it may be to have craniofacial disorder or right. some other kind of a disorder like a neuromuscular one. Uh, we already talked about severity being an indication for staying, and then uncontrolled pain is uh, a reason to, to, to keep the patient as well. Sure. So patients who are older than three, no major comorbidities, and just have mild to moderate disease are, we think, safe to go home. Correct. Correct. But again, we're careful with uh, still with how much opioid they're going to go home with. Right. Uh, we we think that a lot of this uh, thinking about OSA is happening out there. Unfortunately, we still see a number of deaths happening every year, and um, and these are really preventable deaths. And so this is a. Um, an unmitigated tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. So in adults, at least at our institution, uh, and any adult who scores uh, high on the stop bank score or who has known OSA, post-operatively from any surgery in the PACU, they have to pass a room air trial. So they have to be able to maintain their saturations above, I believe, 92% while on room air before they're allowed to leave the PACU. And if they can't do it, they have to spend the night in the PACU so that they can have continuous monitoring. Is that true? Do we do the same thing with kids or not? We don't have a similar protocol for kids, uh, but we do uh, monitor them with a pulse oximeter. Uh, mo- many of them do stay in the PACU overnight. That's our 23-hour stay unit. Okay. Uh, some of them, though, will go to the floor, and they'll usually have a pulse oximeter on all night. Okay, great. Anything else we left out? I think we covered a lot. I think we did, too. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure. All right, that was great. Let us know if you take care of kids in the OR, and if so, how you handle the kids with OSA. Do you use the same kind of screening tools that uh, Dr. Schwengel talked about, or do you have others that you think would be useful to share? If so, go to ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment and see this as well as all of our episodes. Comments are great because others can learn from what you have to say as well. You can, of course, also contact me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you're a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, go to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Special thanks, as always, to Brian Park for making fantastic outlines for many of the episodes, and to all of you who are already patrons on Patreon, we couldn't do it without you. That's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Deb Schwengel, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.